Good morning, good morning. Good to see each one of you this morning. Come on in, grab a seat. And as we gather here, all of you that are joining us online this morning, welcome. We're so glad that you have tuned in with us as we gather today to begin this uh, Passion Week. As we, and we begin this, this morning by uh, worshiping Jesus as our Hosanna, the one who saves. So I invite you to stand and uh, listen to this uh, for the reading of God's Word. When they had approached Jerusalem and come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say to them, Lord, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was written, what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coast. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road. And others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Oh, 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 oh,
concerned about every minute detail that is part of our lives. And so we thank you for your provision. And so we give our tithes and our offerings this morning to say thank you. Bless them. Use them. And thank you, most importantly, for saving us and allowing us to have a relationship with you. In Jesus' name. No other king could vanquish the warhorse or silence the warrior's rage while riding the lowly back of a donkey. No other king could break the dominion of darkness, the tyranny of evil, with a reign of grace and a kingdom of peace. No other king could give his life for the redemption of rebels, his wealth to welcome the outcast. Jesus is that King, the King of glory, Son of the living God. Not just another King, not just another prophet, not just another teacher. He was the one the world had been waiting for, the one to deliver us from captivity, the Son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. He is the goal of the Mosaic Law, Yahweh in the flesh. He is the one to establish God's reign and rule, to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the one prefigured to Noah in the flood, the one promised to Abraham, the one guaranteed to Moses before he died, the one promised to David during his reign, the one revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant, the one predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins. More loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. He is our Jesus, and there is no other king like him. He is our God, our glory, our victorious Savior. There is no other king like him. 
There is no other king. Name above all 
He holds our hearts. That's the king that we're worshiping this morning. Allow yourself to get an image of that. He never leaves you, child of God. He never forsakes you. Yes, there are times it seems like the whole our whole world falls apart. But we have one that we can shout to. We have one that we can praise extravagantly because he is worthy of our praise and because he's done so much for us. It's a We lift you higher. 
why we lean into you and say you are our God. You are the rock of our salvation. You are the one that we put our hope in. We run to you if your name is like a strong tower. Thank you for holding our heart just like you hold the stars. We worship you. Amazing Savior, Lord, and King. Amen. Amazing. Amen. If you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. As we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, we come on this Palm Sunday to a, a, a place where we reflect on many things that people just don't get. The people on Palm Sunday didn't really get it when Jesus came into town. But there's something else that we just don't get. I don't think we really get the cross. What does the cross mean to you? Really, what does it mean to you? Do you really know? Do you really understand? Can you comprehend the significance of the cross? This side of the resurrection, we have a, a better idea of the cross, but a lot of people don't. They, they view the cross, when you view the cross, what do you see? Do you see a piece of wood? Do you see a symbol? Or do you see the benefits that come from that symbol? 
It's something that we have to pause and reflect and, and ask ourselves, especially this time of the year as we come towards Easter. There's a lot of people that miss the meaning of Jesus when he came on Palm Sunday Road, they all came around Jesus as he was coming down that Palm Sunday Road and they cut off palm branches and they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Did they really get it? No, no, they really didn't. They viewed Jesus as some kind of political savior. They, they, they understood Jesus as going to be one that was going to bring them freedom from the Roman Empire. For over 2,000 years, Christians have been honoring the cross. It's become a, a, a symbol of Christianity. Do you ever think about why the cross, though? I mean, the early church, they could have had all kinds of different symbols, couldn't they? It could have been the dove, it could have been uh, palm branches, it could have been like the early church in the catacombs, the ichthus, you know, the fish. It could have been a number of different things. But why the cross? It's become a universal icon of Christianity. For many people, it's become a fashion statement. <laughs> they wear it as jewelry. It doesn't matter if they're believers or non-believers. They'll, they'll wear this, this symbol that's there. A lot of people think that there's something magical in a cross, that if you have a cross, you're going to ward off vampires. We, we think about this symbol, and it's placed on tombs, but what is the cross? Isn't it a memorial, a, a symbol of atonement? It's a sign of death, and that the penalty of that death has been paid for by Jesus at the cross. When we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, it is not some children's story or some fairy tale it was a literal historical event that took place. But over 2,000 years, I think we've lost sight of what the cross really means. That we really don't understand, even as the people of Jesus' day really didn't understand, that it is a honoring of the Son of God who died for our sins. It's the reconciliation between man and God. It's the place where sin was, the debt of sin was paid and freedom was given. The cross really is a sign of freedom. Because once and for all, the debt of sin is, has been paid, and it was paid by a perfect man who was innocent on our behalf. But the real question is, how do you view the cross? What does it mean to you? What does it mean when you look upon that cross, does it move you to say thank you? Does it, does it open the eyes of your understanding and remind you that someone had died for you? Your view of the cross is important. In fact, it's imperative. Because how you view the cross will determine how you value your salvation. If it's just an icon or a symbol you're not going to find much value in it. But if you look at the cross and you find great gratitude, great joy, a celebration, and knowing that you're free, and if you view that cross as the place that your sin was paid for, that your sins were nailed to it in the person of Jesus Christ, then it's from that place that you can have that newness of life. 
When Satan wants to remind you that you are a, a decrepit sinner, there is one place that you can remind him that your sins have been paid for, and that's the cross. We're going to take a look this morning as we journey through these passages, the different views that people had when they looked at the cross. As we, as we try to put ourselves in that day to gain a better understanding of the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm going to ask that you stand as we read through our passages this morning. In Matthew 27, 32 to 66, it's a rather long section. If you can't stand that long, that's, I get it. In Matthew 27, 32, it says, As they were coming out, they found a, found a man of Cyrene named Simon, who they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, You are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down off the cross. Well, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. We'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. On the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it, began saying, well, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge. He filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him drink. But the rest of them said, well, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of their tombs after his resurrection, and they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, and when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen and laid it in his own new tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite of the grave. 
Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders to the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and they made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. May God bless the reading of this word. You can be seated. So we see a number of different scenes and views that come there. I want you to try to put yourself in the mindset or, or the ability to be able to see what Matthew has given to us in his narrative. As he describes this, and this account is in all four of the Gospels, he gives to us an account that is, is trying to portray different views of what those would have seen. The, the crucifixion itself, the general uh, theme that we see is they were coming out of the place. They're, they were there. When we think about this crucifixion, it is necessary. The crucifixion is, is necessary for the payment of our sins. It was appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. But who is going to take that judgment? It would be Jesus. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift that God has given to us is eternal life. Jesus had to die. You know, it's a mind-blowing thing to think that God had foreordained the death of Jesus before the foundations of the world, knowing that it would come to pass. And, and here is the event. We have this free gift of eternal life only because Jesus paid that price. It's a free gift, but somebody had to pay that price. And the first thing that we've got to see when we take a look at the cross is, is the fact that it is a debt that is paid. It is my debt that is paid. When you look at that cross, you've got to look at that cross not as, as Jesus, this, this historical biblical character that died on the cross. You have to look at one who stood in your place. If it wasn't him, it would be you. And so it's imperative to understand the depth of the suffering and the depth of the pain that, that he went through because Jesus received the worst that, that man could throw at him. In this general view, we pick up in verse 32 that as Jesus had finished his trial with Pilate after being beaten and scourged by the Roman Soldiers, 39 lashes, save one for mercy, his back turned into hamburger, his face mutilated, beard pulled out. He's given a crossbeam to carry on the road. The road that was, would be traveled is now named Via de la Rosa. This road that is traveled, you can walk today. You can actually see it when we go to Israel. It is there. These, what you're looking at is the paving stones that are all part of the Via de la Rosa. It is also part of a long corridor that leads from the Antonio Fortress all the way out to what is known as Calvary. Now imagine there would have been thousands and thousands of people that would have been there during the Passover time, and these streets would have been lined with onlookers. You ever see a wreck in all the rubberneckers? They wouldn't have had a clue what was going on, but here is this guy that is carrying this, 
this crossbeam out. Consider the irony on, on this event. We have on Palm Sunday, Jesus traveling on a road from Bethany into Jerusalem, being hailed in Hosanna and all that was going on. And one week later, he's on a different road going out of the city to die. Shows you how fickle people really are, isn't it? And clueless because they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't have an idea that Jesus had come to die for their sins. They were just watching this parade. One parade was on Palm Sunday. Another parade was to the cross. One was hailing Jesus as king. And the next parade he was seen as a criminal. Clueless. They didn't understand the depth of the cross. The depth of Jesus' death. And so within this, this crowd was, was all along and, and just watched this broken man carry the crossbeam. Now, a lot of pictures would show Jesus as, as carrying a full-size cross. No. No, he would have only carried the crossbeam. All those posts, all the straight posts would have already been in place. Because Rome was in a practice of crucifying a lot of people. He would have carried the crossbeam, which we, they average about 70 pounds. Now imagine being up all night, beaten to a pulp within an inch of your life, bleeding out, trying to carry this crosspiece out. It shows the humanity of Jesus that the weight of the cross was much more than what he could handle. And the text tells us that Simon of Cyrene, a man from Libya, was commissioned to come and help Jesus carry this cross. He was pulled into service. Libya, or this Cyrene town, was a Grecian colony that was there. His, his uh, family, Alexander and Rufus, were all connected to the church early on. Had a great impact on them. And we see them being carried out in, and having to go out to this site. Where was the site? The, cross, the site of the crucifixion was outside of the city, had to be outside of the city. Why? Because of the curse that was affiliated with the crucifixion. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 14, it says, Bring the one who was cursed outside the camp, and let all who heard him lay their hands on him on his head, and let the congregation stone them. The Jewish method of, of capital punishment at that day was stoning. But the Roman Empire had taken away the privilege of capital punishment, and the only capital punishment that could happen was through crucifixion. And so Jesus was led out to this place that we know today is called Golgotha, as the text tells us, the place of the skull. Now, there is much debate, not necessary debate, but there is some debate about which is the true place of, of Calvary. Where did Jesus really die? Well, there's two locations that are, are kind of honed in. One is called the church, it's the location known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And so what happened was they have this place and it was a mound next to a set of tombs. And they believe Constantine's mother had gone around and, and built churches all over these holy sites. And so they determined that this was the place where Jesus had died and was buried. And so they built a big church over the top of it. Now, you really can't see it. But as you can see on the diagram, it would have been a mound. And then inside the mound or off to the mound would have been a set of caves. We've been there and there are a number of places and tombs that are inside there. Do we know that's where Jesus died? No. We don't know for sure. 
can't be 100% for sure. There is no sign that says, you know, when Jesus really says, I'm leaving here. Later on, when you want to start your gift shops, this is a good place for a gift shop. Didn't do that. So the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and a lot of people go there. Is, 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 is that super important? Not necessarily. What's the other side? The other side is known as Gordon's Calvary. This, both sites were outside of the original city walls. Gordon's Calvary is a little bit more, in my mind, a more likely place. Why? Because the text tells us in Matthew, it was called Golgotha, or the place of the skull. As you look at the picture... This is the hillside that is just outside of the city gates along the road of Damascus. And can you see the two eyes and where the nose? There was more of a nose at one time, but the nose fell off. But just outside of that, is there a, there's a knob just above that. And within close proximity of less than, I would say, probably oh, less than 100 yards is a tomb. And it's an unfinished tomb. We, why do we call it Calvary? Well, we call it Calvary because in Latin, calva means skull. And so we call it Calvary today within this. We know based on, on Matthew's account that they took him out to Calvary, Golgotha. And again, is the location that important? No, we don't worship a location, do we? No. It just tells us and reminds us that this is a literal historical event. And everybody would have known where this place was. It was the execution site. The soldiers, upon arriving at that execution site, one of the first things that they would have done is they would have given Jesus what would have been a customary sedative. It was sour wine that was mixed with gall. And what was the purpose of the gall? The gall was, was an act of mercy to kind of take away some of the pain but the underlying was, if we give him a sedative and he can't feel all the pain, he'll live longer and then he'll die a longer death within that. Matthew says that Jesus tasted it and spit it out. He didn't want anything to do with it. Why? Because he wanted to feel the full pressure and the, the, the full effect of the pain within his flesh while he was making that sacrifice. This tells us that Jesus didn't take any shortcuts. Could Jesus have stopped this at any point in time? Absolutely. But he endured the crosses, as the Bible tells us, and despised the shame. The marching through the streets, the, the insults. It fulfills prophecy in Matthew, or I'm sorry, in uh, Psalm 69.21. says, They also gave me gall for my food and my thirst, and they gave me vinegar to drink. So the general view of, of this is this guy that is this rabbi that everybody saw as being popular and now he's found out to be a criminal. And just like every other criminal, he's marched through the streets and he's going to this cross. He must not have been truly the Son of God. Imagine all the people that have been following him going, wow, we were following the wrong guy. Now he's a criminal. And just sitting on the margins, not having an idea, not having a clue of what was about to happen. Like many people in the world today, they look at the cross and they don't have a clue, do they? They don't realize that the cross represents the payment for their sin. Who else didn't have a clue? Well, the soldiers. Matthew tells us in verses 35 to 37 that the soldiers would have taken all of Jesus' clothes 
whether he was hanging naked or most probably a loincloth was around him, the soldiers would have put him up onto this cross. How would they have crucified him? We, we have these very uh, nice-looking pictures of Jesus on there. You've you, you got to understand, the crucifixion, or we get this word excruciating, comes from this idea of cross. It was not a pretty picture. They would have taken nine-inch nails and driven them through the wrist. Many times we say, okay, well, it went in the hand. If it goes through the hand here, what's it going to do? It's going to pull right out in between the fingers. So they would have driven it through his wrist. A doctor had gone through and done a, a, a physiological study to determine the death of Jesus. It's great work. This is one of the cross sections, and it shows where that nine-inch nail would have gone through. And it would have gone through the wrist to be able to hold it up. They would have driven it through the wrist and then wrapped it uh, with rope. Then they, the feet would have been overlapped. Either the right over the left or the left over the right with the knees slightly turned. And the nail would have gone through the metatarsals in order to be able to put it, the foot into the post. The arms would have been stretched out as far as they would have gone in order to be able to create a torturous death. Why? Because death was not by the nails. The nails did not kill Jesus. Jesus died of a broken heart. Asphyxiation was the goal. The arms would have been stretched out so much that the weight of the body would push against the diaphragm, keeping the individual from being able to breathe. The only way that you could catch a breath was to relieve the pressure off the diaphragm by pushing up on the nails, taking a breath, and then relaxing. Not very nice picture, is it? The view of the cross. And they would have done this time and time again to so many people, and Jesus endured the cross. The pain of the cross, the suffering of the cross. And it would have been pushing up and down for six hours. Meanwhile, the soldiers were indifferent. How were they indifferent? It was just another day at work. And so they would take in Jesus' clothes, his tunic, that was one woven garment, and they would have parted it out by lottery and casting lots, fulfilling Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. It says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They would have played a, a Roman game of throwing the dice to be able to get the stuff. It was their bonus, whatever they could get, and then they would take it and sell it or do whatever they were going to do with it. All of that's going on at the cross. We sing songs today at the cross, but do we really understand the cross? Above Jesus' head would have been a sign called a titleless. The titleless was written by Pilate in three languages, and it was his dig against the Jews. And as everybody would have come by, they would see the criminal and they'd see the titleless above them. And it might say, you know, on their titles, it might say robber, insurrectionist, some kind of criminal. What was Jesus' crime? This is Jesus, the Nazarene, king of the Jews, written in three different languages. The Sanhedrin had come to Pilate and said, don't write king of the Jews, he's not our king. And Pilate said, nope, what I've written, I've written. It is what it is. You wonder where that statement came from, didn't you? And we look at that, and, it, and, and within this, you've got to get this picture in your mind. 
The Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross, not worshiping Jesus, but taking from him. Jesus hanging on this cross, blood flowing from his head, his hands, his feet, a sign above him. The cross would have been no more than six inches to maybe a foot off the ground, just enough to get the weight off the ground, but close enough that anybody that wanted to walk by would almost be able to look him in the eyes to be able to cast insults to see him. We see these big, you know, 20-foot crosses. It wasn't like that. It would have been something very close. And this crucifixion would have taken place about 9 in the morning. Or, as Mark tells us, the third hour. What was another view? The other view would have been the crowd coming by, verses 38 to 40. As they come through and they're taking a look at them, the robbers on either side of them, the left and the right. So as you're walking up or if you're there, you're seeing here's Jesus and then there's a robber on either side of them. There were three crosses that were there. I can't get past the image, the fact that there were three crosses already preset. A robber on one side, a robber on the other. But who was missing from the middle? Barabbas. But Jesus took his place. And here, Jesus hung on this cross in between two robbers, fulfilling Isaiah 53.12, where he says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and I will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That was a prophecy of Isaiah. And here it's fulfilled. Did God plan this? Yes. Did God intend on His Son suffering and dying for our sin? Yes. When it was all this planned before the foundations of the world. Why? Because He saw you before the foundations of the world and planned for your redemption. And it all took place at the cross. Within this, you can see the people alongside the road coming and taunting and saying, look, if you're really the Son of God, come down off of this cross. They would have repeated the same thing that they heard. And it's amazing because they have the same verbatim statements that were said at the trial, which tells us that there were people at the trial that came to the cross and said, look, it, there's the guy that said he's going to destroy the temple and then raise it in three days. Ha! What a joke. But notice the next question. If you're really the Son of God, come down. Does that remind you of another temptation? Maybe three of them? This demonic temptation that took place at the foot of the cross. Does Satan give up? No. No. He's grinding on Jesus. And throws this out. If you're really the Son of God, come down off this cross. Is that what Satan wanted? Imagine what would have happened if Jesus would have said, you know what? I'm done. I'm coming off the cross. But he doesn't give in. And imagine taking all of those insults upon himself and not retaliating. Could Jesus have done something for God? In my sanctified imagination, I could have said, well, if I would have been Jesus hanging on that cross, okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to die for the sins of the world. But right now, all of you that are bugging me, drop dead. Good thing I'm not Jesus. But he didn't do that. 
He didn't open his mouth. I think how many times people insult me or, or, or say things and hurtful things or those temptations. Does everybody deserve an answer? No, he took it. He took it. You think about all of this that's going on. And you think about the ramifications. If Jesus had come off that cross and not paid the penalty for your sin, where would you be? All mankind would be eternally damned. If Jesus had come off that cross, all mankind would be eternally damned. Then you think about the the leadership in 41 to 44. In the same way, the chief priests, they were coming alongside and they were mocking him. He saved others and he can't even save himself. Think about the implications of this statement. He saved others and he can't save himself. What were they saying to the crowd? He's a fake. All of those miracles that he had done, it was a joke. He saved others, he can't save himself. Don't believe in him. And try to discredit the ministry. And to attack him personally within this. If he was the king of Israel, and again they say, come down off of that cross. Not only that, but they mocked his own relationship with his father. You say you're the son of God, that God is your father. God doesn't really care about you. Your father doesn't care about you. Your father has done this to you. He's allowing it. You hear the voice of the mocker Satan in that? And how many times do we hear that voice of the mocker Satan in our own minds? When you're going through trials and tribulation and grief and suffering, and Satan comes in and says, God doesn't really care about you. God's allowing you to go through this. God intended you to suffer. Well, that was true for Jesus. And it may be true that we will go through suffering and sorrow and hardship in this world. But God's got a plan. And God wastes nothing. We should never listen to the mocker Satan. We should understand that it is part of, of going through this world and the tribulations of this world. But Jesus tells them, God, God tells them to be of good cheer because he's overcome the world. God loves you. God loves the Son. And it was proven at the cross. This mockery also fulfills Psalm 22.8 where it says, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver you. Let Him rescue because He delights in Him. Within this, they were mocking and they were even quoting Scripture. And then both criminals on either side join in. Yes, both criminals did. It wasn't until later, until one of the criminals, and you can read about it in Luke 23.40, where one of the criminals finally comes to his senses and says, oh, wait a minute. I think that criminal was probably pretty close to death. It's amazing how when you get close to death, you come to your senses. And he said, remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Why? I believe because he saw the witness of Jesus. I believe because this criminal that was hanging next to Jesus heard and saw everything, and his view of the cross radically changed. Only the Son of God 
Only the Redeemer could endure this with this kind of love and patience and kindness. He must be who He says He is. And the first one that got saved from looking at the cross would be this robber that was on a cross next to Him. Amazing. Then we come to the death. The death of Jesus. How would you view the death of Jesus? If you were there, standing at the foot of the cross, what would you have seen? Matthew, again, gives us some word pictures, but I'm sure the horror would, doesn't, doesn't do justice. In verse 45, it says this, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell all over the land until the ninth hour. So about noon, everything became dark. And as a witness to this cross, you'd look at it and you go, this is not good. Why? Because in your mind you would say, this is an apocalyptic event. This is something that is radical. In Amos chapter 8, verses 9 through 10, it says this, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down in it at noon. And make the earth dark in broad daylight. And then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lament. And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on everyone's head. I just checked and the sun's still up. We're good. Baldness on everyone's head. Can't get over that one. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. No, and for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. It was Passover. And the sun became dark. And the people at that cross would have gone, wow, uh-oh. This is not good. And it was dark and silent for three hours. And at the end of that Time, the ninth hour or 3 p.m., Jesus cries out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Matthew translates it for us, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I wonder why Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Why didn't he speak in Hebrew? Because Aramaic was the common language of the day. Everybody would have understood. It was the language of commerce. Everybody would have understood that statement. And Jesus was declaring a finish. This was not the only statement that Jesus said. In fact, Jesus would make seven statements from the cross. If you're taking notes, you can, you can mark these down. Father, forgive them at the beginning in Luke 23, 34. Today you will be with me in paradise to the thief on the cross. Luke 23, 42, 43. The conversation between Mary and John where he, he looked at Mary he says, Behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. In John nineteen twenty six, I thirst. John nineteen twenty eight, It is finished. John nineteen thirty. And into your hands I commend my spirit. Luke twenty three forty six. Jesus did not have a lot to say from the cross. But every statement was a theological statement. And it was all part and parcel. That tells us and shows us that truly in his humanity he suffered and he died. There is no doubt that he paid the price. Wearing and bearing the full weight of the sin of the world upon him at that time. 
The crowd misunderstood his cry in verse 47 to 50. Eloi, Eloi, and, and no doubt because of the, the swelling of his face, the pain of the cross, the end of his life, it was muttered. And they thought, he's calling for Elijah. Why was he calling for Elijah? Because they all knew that according to Malachi 4, 5, Elijah was supposed to come in the great day. Elijah is a prophet that never died and he's saying he's lost his mind. He's calling for Elijah to come save him. And at that point in time, he says, I thirst. And someone goes and gets him sour wine. The poor man's wine puts it on a reed, takes it to him, puts it on a sponge. And now Jesus drinks. And the mockers were saying, well, wait, stop. Let's wait and see if Elijah comes. Think about the callousness that takes place. Not even a simple act of mercy trying to stop that. Let's wait and see if Elijah comes and saves him. Within that, Why did Jesus take a drink now and he wouldn't take one earlier? Because he's already been judged. And the final judgment is this. His death. The final payment was almost complete. He was almost done. We've got to understand one thing. No one took the life of Jesus. He released his spirit. He conquered the penalty for sin and for death. And when that payment was paid in full... When he said, it is finished, he was not talking about his life, tetelestai, made complete. He was not talking about his life, he was talking about the debt for your sin and mine. When you look at the cross, your mind should come up with the image of a sign that says, paid in full. All your sin, past, present, and future has been been paid in full by Jesus. It was love that took Jesus to the cross. It was love that kept him on the cross. To the end. Love for who? You. Me. I don't know this for sure, and I can't hang a theological hat on this. But I'd like to think that while Jesus was on that cross, he had the capability and the capacity as God to be able to see the redeemed and to see the images of those that would be saved. It was for that love, the capacity and the ability to look to the face of his Father and out of a love relationship with his Father, out of obedience, he stayed on that cross. The cross is not a good luck charm. It is not a symbol that just says, yeah, I belong to a club or a cult. It is a significant event in history. It's the transformation from death to life. Well, when Jesus died in 51 to 53, nature responded. How did nature respond? A great earthquake took place. Not only had the sun gotten dark and then they come back at three, this great earthquake takes place. The tombs had opened up. Now, if you were to read this together in Matthew, you would see this as, as something that was cataclysmic and again apocalyptic within this. The veil of the temple was torn. Notice, how was it torn? Bottom to top or top to bottom? 
top to bottom. What was the veil? It was what separated between the holy place and the holy of holies. As if God was reaching down. How big was this veil? The veil was sewn in was 18 inches thick. It was as if God had reached down and tore it. Only once a year could the high priest come through and go into the holy place. Only after he offered sacrifice for himself. But once the sacrifice was paid, there was no need for that veil. The sacrifice was paid and man now has free access to God. And God says, it is finished. This is how you know it's finished. The veil's torn and now you have access to the throne room of grace. And you don't have to go through a high priest. The tombs were rolled open. Matthew gives us this idea that the tombs rolled open, but you've got to understand, Matthew is written looking backwards. He says the, the tombs were rolled open during that time. And then after the resurrection of Jesus, the holy ones were seen in the holy city. There was not a resurrection of the saints prior to the resurrection of Jesus. It happened after that took place. We know that that the tombs were these, these holes or these caves and it would have a round rock that was in front of it. And so it would be rolled in place. This is a picture of an actual tomb in Israel that you could drive alongside the road. There are these things all over the place. That would have been rolled open. But from the time of Jesus' death to, till His resurrection Sunday was only a couple of days. That tomb would have been rolled open and He made peace with all men within this. He's the first of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since a man came death, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection for the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. It's Jesus' sacrificial death that had given freedom. Every single person that dies without Christ is bound to death. It's a bondage of death. You will die without Christ. But because of Jesus' death and Him giving to you that forgiveness of sins, that bondage is broken. You've been set free because you've been set free because He paid that price. The first testimony of understanding this would be the centurion. His view, he watches this and the guard, the execution squad that's there, they look and they said, behold, truly this is the Son of God. Yet there was sadness. Because they only have the body of Jesus. What to do with the body? The body had to come off of the cross prior to sundown. Otherwise the land would be cursed. So Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, a rich man, said, I've got to take care of him. Goes to Pilate and says, Pilate, please, let me have the body of Jesus. According to Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, it says, If a man's committed a sin worthy of death, he's put to death and hung, hang on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on a tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Joseph says, we don't want the land cursed. I've got to take care of Jesus, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give to him my tomb. And so within this, this tomb was given of Joseph. In, in, again, Isaiah 53, 9 says, His grave was, not, was assigned with wicked men, not assigned with wicked men. 
Yet he was a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor there was any deceit in his mouth. The tomb was an unfinished tomb. Joseph of Arimathea's tomb is not far, or we believe it to be not far, from Calvary. It was an unfinished tomb. It was in the garden setting of a rich man. This has been dressed up a little bit from the gardeners and all of that, but this is the, known as the garden tomb at Gordon's Calvary. Inside are two, are, uh, two different sections that are set up. One is a finished slab. The other one is an unfinished slab. And it was a rich man's tomb that was set up where you would go in. And there's a, a schematic that shows that you can go in and there's a sitting place. And then the two tombs placed on either side. Jews would spend about a week inside this family tomb. This was discovered because it was filled with trash at one point in time. And when they cleaned it up, they discovered this. Not far from Calvary. Within this. Jesus just borrowed a tomb from Joseph of Arimathea because... Actually, he wasn't going to need it for very long. He only needed it for three days, so there was no sense having one made. Because he would rise again. But the tomb was a stumbling block. It was a stumbling block for the leaders. Why? Because they went to Pilate and they said, Look it, we see Jesus dead, and now we see him buried. But what if the body disappears? We can't have that deceiver. Notice what they called Jesus, that deceiver. Deceive people. His disciples will come and try to take the body. And so we need to make the, the tomb secure for just three days. Why three days? Because Jesus said he would rise again in three days. Pilate is done with these guys and he says, look, you got your own guards. Fine, let's go seal it for three days. You take care of it. And they go and they seal the tomb. It's not the tomb that is the symbol. It's the cross. When you look at the cross, what do you see? When you look at the cross, what does it mean to you? The sacrificial death of Jesus is what gives us freedom. If Jesus never died on the cross, you would be eternally damned, as so would I. When we look at the cross, especially this next week, especially this next week, think about where you would be apart from Jesus paying the price for your sin. And then from that place, let's worship Him. Let's pray. God, I thank You that You've given to us this hope in this future. The grave is not our eternal destiny as it was not Yours. The cross is not where we have to pay for our sin because, Lord Jesus, you paid the price for our sin. You've given your life so that we might have life and in you we find life, life eternal. Lord, may our hearts break over our sin and when we look to the cross, may we celebrate your sacrifice, Lord Jesus. And may we honor you with the totality of our life a heart that is grateful for all that you've done. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's praise the Lord. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. 
look at the cross, may we have the view of an empty cross with a sign left that says paid in full. Because Lord Jesus, you didn't remain on the cross. You died. You were buried. And three days later, you rose again, conquering sin and death. And provide freedom for all those that have put their faith and trust in you. You give to those who believe in you freedom. I would pray this morning if any of you that are struggling to live in that freedom. Consider the cross. And realize that Jesus paid. God, I thank you for that freedom that you've afforded to us. Lord, we pray that you would go before us and that you would just be honored by the things we say in you. May we walk in that newness of life and realize that we are children of the Most High. 
God, I thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.